0: Good morning. We've got, um, oh, 14 or 15 verses to read out of Genesis this morning, so uh, just relax for a few minutes while I do a little reading here. <clears throat> From the end of chapter two, and the beginning of chapter three, I'd just like to read a couple of verses. chapter two verses uh, 24 and 25, and then a good part of chapter three. Genesis 2:24. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united with his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked and felt no shame. Those are the ending verses of the story of creation. And all that God made, and all that was perfect, and all that was beautiful, and all was right with the world. And then chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit from the trees of the garden. But God did say, You must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. I'm going to stop there. Uh, In the story of the beauty of creation and then the fall of mankind, we see that there is sin in the world. Sin is never, ever going to go away from the world. It's always going to be here. And it causes death and destruction everywhere. And this morning in our prayers, we want to pray for uh, Brad and Jess List and their unborn baby we 're going to pray for Sarah Winger as she uh, waits uh, diagnosis and uh, and prognosis on cancer and for the joy that we share with A j and Katrina uh, at their uh, their very much anticipated uh, uh, child, so join me in prayer, Heavenly Father, we know that you have created all things. you are a God of beauty, splendor. And, love. and we just thank you so much for all the wonders that you've created on this earth and the beautiful things that you give us. For, for children, Lord, we're so thankful uh, for AJ and Christina's good news this morning. We just pray that they have a, a healthy and safe pregnancy. And the, the, in due time, uh, a wonderful gift be delivered uh, in your praise, God. We thank you for that. Heavenly Father, there is sin in the world. There is evil, there's hate, and there's death. Lord, we pray for uh, the unborn baby and Brad and Jess that you perform a miraculous healing. God, you, you perform miracles every day. You're, you're capable, and we know that if we call on you, that you will listen to us. So we just pray for a healing as this baby comes to term. Heavenly Father, we know you can do that. And we also know that your will be done. So uh, we just pray that uh, when this baby does arrive, that if there is not a healing <coughs> before this child arrives, that the oldest hand in, this child in your hands, put the uh, doctors and physicians around this child to, uh, to take care of him. Bless this child uh, uh, with, uh, with your grace, Lord. And, Lord, we know that... Um, there is disease and illness in the world, which, again, Lord, you can heal. And we just pray for a healing for Sarah Winger. We just pray that you would uh, take the cancer away. Heavenly Father, again, we know that uh, it's all in your will and your time. Humble us to accept those things which you give and the things that you don't. And, Lord, we just, we just pray a prayer of thanksgiving and praise that uh, when all is done on this earth, that we'll join you in heaven forever. And we just thank you so much for your love and eternity, Lord. Amen. Amen.
1: Amen. Thank you, Dan. <clears throat> well, good morning. So, uh, Stan, when I'm done with my sermon, I expect you to say, let's hear it again, okay? <laughs> Maybe we'll have two first this morning. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me uh, to the book of Genesis. Dan read the portion of the text that is leading up to the portion that we will be in. And so Genesis chapter 3 is where we are going to begin. We've been in our new series called Doing Business with God, and we were in part two of that sermon series, Doing Business with God, and I've entitled the sermon, The Pains of Work. Um, Just a brief uh, sketch as to where we've been and where we're going. Last week we saw the picture of work. We saw from Genesis 1 and 2 that work is good and inherently valuable, that God himself is a worker, and that he calls us as workers to join in with him in his work, that there's no divide between secular and sacred work, but everything we do is an act of worship to our God, even in our work. And so we saw a marvelous picture of the way work should be, the way God intended it to be before the fall. And now in part two, we see the pains of work, And we see a little bit more of an accurate, although fallen, description of what work is really like. So I trust that you're there in Genesis chapter 3. Let's pray one more time and then we'll jump in to our sermon this morning as we continue to learn about doing business with God. So let's pray. Father, thank you for the time that we've had. Thank you for a sweet time of fellowship that we've already enjoyed together with one another. Thank you for a sweet time of worship where we can lift our voices in song to you. We can lift our hearts in praise to you for you indeed are are great. In the name of Jesus Christ is the name above all names. In the name of which every knee one day will bow in heaven and earth on earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ indeed is Lord. And in that day, we want to do it humbly. We want to do it being rightly related to you, Jesus, through faith in what you have done and not by force, not with hard hearts on the day of judgment. And so we pray this morning, Jesus, that we would be found in a right relationship with you by your grace and our faith in what you have done for us in your life. Father, we come this morning and we want to learn from your word how to work well. We we want to learn principles that work at work, and we want to understand work and we want to know your intentions for it. And yet, we also want to know the result of our sin on our work and how it has really tainted, along with everything else in this creation. Uh, sin has tainted our work as well, and so we want to have a realistic picture of it. We want to assess it rightly, and we want to salvage the satisfaction of it because you have planned work for us and you have made us as workers and it's a good and godly thing and so help us now as we look at the pains of our work to understand them to accept them in our fallen world and to anticipate the day when your Son will return to this world and recreate all that is fallen. And even in our work, He will make it anew so that our work will be everlasting, so that our work will be full of joy and not pain, so that we might work with all of our hearts to you as our Lord and as our God. And so help us, we pray, in the name of Jesus. And all of God's people said, Amen. I'd like to begin this morning with uh, a few cartoons. I don't know about you, but growing up, I only valued the newspaper for one thing, and that was for the cartoons that would come uh, towards the end of it. And so I, I enjoy a good cartoon here or there. And when you look for cartoons on the internet, uh, in particular as it relates to work, you'll find quite a few, quite a few cartoons uh, related to work. And so I found some that kind of make light a little bit of some of the pain that we feel at work, some of the difficulty that we have at work. So I'd just like to, to read these with you. Uh, here's a little baby. Oh, great. Cubicles. Next, can I have your job after it kills you? You know, we're just not reaching that guy as he joyfully does work. And then finally, this is my favorite. I guess I suggest that everyone roll up in a tight little ball until the danger is past. So... After seeing a little bit of uh, making light of the pains of work, what I'd like to do is for us to talk a little bit about, in seriousness, the pain that we feel at our work. Last week we looked at kind of God's ideal. What What is God's ideal at work? And having heard that sermon, if you were here with us last week, you may have felt a bit of a tension. You may have felt a tension within your heart that, yes, this is right and this is God's intention at work, and yet it's just a little bit too ideal. It's a little bit too utopian, and that's because we haven't looked at Genesis 3, and we haven't looked at the rest of the Bible to see some of the effects that sin, our sin, and the sin of Adam and Eve have on our work. And so Tim Keller in his book, Every Good Endeavor, if you're looking for a a book about work, I would highly recommend it to you, Every Good Endeavor. And he hits it on the head when he says this, He says, We have surveyed, like we did last week, the rich biblical view of God's perfect design for work, but that is not how we experience it. Everyone knows that it is a broken, troubled world, shot through with sickness, death, injustice, selfishness, natural disaster, and chaos. He goes on to say that sin has unraveled the fabric of the entire world, and in no area so profoundly. As our work. If we have come, uh, if we have only some understanding of how sin distorts work, we can hope to counteract its effects and salvage some of the satisfaction that God has planned for our work. So, what I hope to do today is look at several scriptures, uh, five of them in particular, and see five of the pains that sin brings to our work. And then we'll see, corresponding to those five pains, five principles. Five principles, hopefully, that work at work to help us, as Tim Keller says, salvage some of the satisfaction that God has intended for us at work. So if you're in your Bibles, turn with me now to Genesis chapter 3, starting in verse 17, because starting in verse 17 and running through verse 24, we see our first truth about the effect of sin on our work, and it is simply this. Number one, sin simply makes work harder. That's the first thing that we learn from the Bible as we look at the effect of the fall on our work is that sin makes work harder. As I was studying for my sermon this week, I ran across an article in a magazine, and the article uh, was found many years ago in the ruins of a London office, uh, an office, a work office that was dated back to 1852. And so I'd like to read with you this notice that was posted, apparently in this work office in London several years ago. Uh, posted, number one, it says, this firm has reduced the hours of work and the clerical staff will now only have to be present between the hours of 7 a.m. and 6 p.m. weekdays. Number two, clothing must be of a sober nature. The clerical staff will not disport themselves and Ramiants of bright colors, nor will they wear hose unless in good repair. Number three, posted. A stove is provided for the benefit of the clerical staff. Coal and wood must be kept in your locker. It is recommended that each member of the clerical staff bring four pounds of coal each day during the cold winter season. Posted number 4. No member of the clerical staff will leave the room without express permission from their supervisor. Number 5. No talking is allowed at all during business hours. Number 6. Now that the hours of business have been drastically reduced, the partaking of food is now allowed between 11:30 a.m. and noon, but work will not on any account cease. Number seven, members of the clerical staff will provide their own pens. A new sharpener is available on application to the supervisor. Posted number eight, the supervisor will nominate a senior clerk to be responsible for the cleanliness of the main office and the private office. Brushes, brooms, scrubbers, and soap are all generously provided to you by the owner's. And number nine, the owners recognize the generosity of the new labor laws, but will expect a great rise in output put of work to compensate for these near utopian conditions. Um, you may think your work is hard, but I doubt that you work under those kind of conditions in 1852. So let's turn now to Genesis chapter 3, and let's see how the first sin of Adam and Eve and our continued sin as fallen people affect our work. Genesis chapter 3, and we'll read verses 17 through 24. Verse 17 says, To Adam, now God is doling out the curses, the ramifications of their sin. To Adam, he said, Because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground. Because of you, through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. Now Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living, The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife to clothe them. And the Lord God said, the man now has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the garden of Eden cherubim, and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. Now there's quite a bit that we could say there, a lot for us to learn, but quite simply what I want us to see is that work for Adam and Eve and that work for you and I uh, post-garden would be harder. Work was now harder for Adam, the work uh, itself Notice the work itself would be harder. It would produce sweat. From the sweat of his brow, he would provide sustenance for he and his family. And so the work itself, the first effect is that the work itself is harder. Now notice something pretty significant. God did not curse work, but he said it would simply be harder. And so work was not inherently wrong. It was not inherently evil. It was not a a punishment from God, and yet the difficulty of it, would now be significantly harder than it was in the great utopian environment of the garden. So work itself would be harder, but notice the work environment would also be harder. Where was Adam first working? You remember, where did God place him to work? In the garden, in this paradise of a place. He placed the man to work, and now where does he place him to work? Notice, he gets kicked out of the garden, east of the garden. And so not only is his work harder, but the environment of his work and the environment of our work in which we work in now is far less cooperative and far more hostile. And so that leads us to the first principle of the morning, the first principle that works at work, and that is this. Because work is harder, we need to have a realistic expectation of our work. Because work now is harder than what God intended, we need to think well, reasonably, and, and have reasonable expectations about our work, which I think most people do. at the end of the day, our muscles may hurt if we labor outside with our arms and legs. At the end of the day, our, our eyes, they may be tired from staring at a computer screen all day long. Our minds may be weary from solving problems and working diligently in, in books. Our emotions may be spent. If our job involves spending time with people day after day and moment after moment, our emotions may be exhausted. Our nerves, for those of you mothers who stay at home, may be shot from spending a day, all day at, at home with the kids. I think the first principle that we need to accept as fallen people is that quite simply, our, our jobs are just hard. They're harder than what God intended them to be. It's an effect of Adam's sin and our sin. And so the first principle is that sin, it just makes work harder. It makes work harder. And so the work itself is harder. But what about the effect of sin on us? We've seen how sin affects our work, and we've seen how sin affects our work environment, but how does how does sin affect us? We saw in the passage that Dan read that sin affected Adam on a personal level, and that sin affected Eve on a personal level. And the Bible says uh, from Genesis 3 on that sin affects every single one of us on a personal level. And so that leads us then to the second effect that the Bible shares about our sin and work. And that's simply this. Sin makes workers and therefore co-workers and therefore organizations fallen. That is, not inherently sinful and yet prone to sin, and so think about it. Not only is our work affected, not only is our environment affected, but we ourselves, as a worker, are affected by our sin. First of all, our sin affects us as workers, our sin affects our co workers. Uh, as such. Let's turn now just one chapter ahead to Genesis chapter 4. So if you have your Bibles, look one chapter ahead in Genesis chapter 4. And what do we see in Genesis chapter 4? If you know your Bible well, after the fall, you know what comes next. In Genesis chapter 4, we see how sin affects individuals because just one chapter and one generation after Adam and Eve, we see sin having a ravenous effect on workers. In Genesis chapter 4, we see one worker— by the name of Cain, he is a son of Adam and Eve, and he's a farmer, like many of you. He works the land, and yet we see that he commits a great sin against another worker whose name is Abel. And Abel was a livestock worker. He worked with animals, and one worker commits a great sin against another worker, and they just happen to be brothers. Genesis chapter 4, 1-8, through 8. let's see how sin affects us individually. Adam loved <clears throat> made love to his wife Eve and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, "With the help of the Lord I have brought forth a man." Later she gave birth to his brother Abel. Now notice. Now Abel kept flocks and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord, and Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from uh, some of the firstborn of his flocks. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. So what is he going to do about it? Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted?" But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother and killed him. And so, from the very beginning of the story of creation, from the very beginning after the fall, what we see is that sin affects every individual on a very personal level. It causes us to be inclined towards sin and rebellion and towards hurting one another. But it doesn't stop there. Sin not only affects us as workers, it affects our co workers. I want you to think just a minute about those who work around you, those you would consider your co workers. Are they sinful? In some degree, you would say, well, no, maybe they're good people. But to some degree, you would say, yes, because every single human being, both uh, your coworker and you yourself, are sinful and, and fallen, and sin affects you, and it, and it affects them. And so what happens when you put a sinful worker alongside with another sinful worker, alongside with another sinful worker, alongside with a sinful boss, and a sinful boss over him, and what do you get? You get a business. You get an organization full of people who are fallen. And that leads oftentimes to sin, even in an organization. We're going to take a look at this passage in Genesis 11 here in one second. And so flip even further to the right, to the book of Genesis. We're not going to read it now, but in Genesis chapter 11, we have what I would call the very first business, the very first, in a sense, organization of workers. It was an organization of workers that formed in Genesis chapter 11. You may know the story as the Tower of Babel. We'll read it in just a second, but essentially, there's an organization, a bunch of workers get together, and they say, we don't want to do what God says. God said we're supposed to go out and fill the earth, but we don't want to do that. God says that we're supposed to make a name of him, but we want to make a name for ourselves, and so they build a tower, a great, big, high tower, a tower to independence, to human independence of God, and to human self-sufficiency. And quite simply, what I want us to see is that sin affects us, it affects our coworkers, and it affects your workplace. Think about what happens amongst coworkers at your workplace. Think about what happens in organizations. It's not altogether holy, is it not? And so that leads us to the second principle, and that's this, the second principle that works at work. Because workers... And organizations and our co workers sin. As Christians, we must not contribute to it. And what I mean by that is this if you are a worker and you work alongside co workers and you work for a boss and you work for an organization, the question that we need to ask ourselves is this are we contributing to the overall sinfulness of the organization or are we helping it? Are we preserving it? Are we making it more sinful? Are we helping our co workers become more? unlike God, more sinful? Do we contribute to it? Or are we like salt, like a preservative, like Jesus tells us we need to be for sin in the world? Do you tell the jokes just like the other guys? And do you laugh at them just like the other guys at work? Or do you walk away and refuse to engage in that in your organization? What about the gossip mill that happens uh, around your office with your coworkers? Do you engage in that Or do you act as salt and a preservative? What about the coworkers that slack off? You know that they don't do their jobs well, only when they're being watched. Or do you work diligently even when you are not being watched? Because sin affects us as workers and it affects our organizations, I encourage you and challenge all of us as Christian workers to not contribute to the sinfulness of the organization, but to be a preservative for it. And so we've seen in Genesis chapter 3, Genesis chapter 4, Genesis chapter 11, these two principles, sin makes our work harder. It it affects us personally. And now, number three, we actually get to Genesis chapter 11 formally. Third, sin, sin can make work selfish. Sin can, doesn't have to, but it can make our work selfish. That is, we work for our own selfish ends. I want to show you a picture here, if we can flash it on the screen. Uh, Does anybody know what this building is? Guesses? Oh, I heard heard a place where? Dubai. Dubai, that's correct. So it is in Dubai in the country of the United Arab Emirates. And what is significant about this building right now? tallest building in the world. It is indeed the tallest building in the world. I, I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right, but it's called the Burj Khalifa. I'm not Arabic, so I'm not sure if that's what it's, 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 it's named, but it is indeed the highest now currently, uh, the tallest building in the world. Uh, according to my sources, it is some uh, 2,772 feet high. 2,700 feet high, and it has um, 163 floors. So, if you're scared of heights, I would not recommend going to stay there. Uh, but if you like elevator rides, like my kids do, it would be a great place to go. You know, you could go up and up and up, uh, seemingly forever. Uh, but the reason why I show you this is not just to inform you about the tallest building in the world. I want to ask you this um, Does anybody know who or, or what, what was the tallest building in the world before this? I actually don't know. I'm curious. Do you know? Sears Tower, possibly? I was thinking that. I'm not sure. I didn't do my research. You look it up. But but the point that I want to make is that there was, before this, a tallest building in the world, right? And before that, whichever one it was, there was a tallest building in the world. And before that, there was another tallest building in the world. And so the question I want to ask is, what? on on some level, there's a functional use for this, but why why do human beings build tall buildings? Why do we build tall buildings? Why do, we, why do we want to have the tallest building in the world? So they can say that they built the tallest building in the world. You know, um, we build tall buildings just for the same reason that the very first— Set and generations of people build tall buildings. The very same reason the first organization of workers that we see in Genesis chapter 11 built in that day, what they thought was most likely the tallest building in the world. And the uh, the text explicitly says it was to make a name for themselves. To make a name for themselves. To establish an identity apart from God. Genesis chapter 11, let's just read the account in short. Now the whole world had one language and, and a common speech. Genesis 11, as people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. They said to one another, come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. So they had a new technology, they could make bricks. So what are we going to do with it? They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. Then they said, and here comes the motivation, come, let us build ourselves a city With a tower that reaches to the heavens so that, here it comes, so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth, which is exactly what God told humanity to do. To establish an identity and to make a name. Sin can, in our work life, become selfish, which leads us to the third principle. Because work can turn selfish, we must find our identity in Jesus. So why did they do that? They wanted to make a name for themselves. They wanted their identity to be in the fact that they made the tallest tower in the world and they defied a holy God. That's what they were trying to do, make a name for themselves. They wanted people to know about them. And so I have a question for you. Do you go to work with the purpose of making a name for yourself? Why do you go to work? Why do you go to work every day? I'm sure there are a myriad of reasons, not just one, but is one of them, maybe not the top, but is one of them an inward drive to make a name for yourself, to go up the depth charts, to, to climb the corporate ladder, so to speak, so that the, the community and your coworkers and the people in church might think that you are great instead of God. Is your identity wrapped up in your work? I think for uh, many of us, in uh, In particular, I think those of us who are male, I think we struggle with this. We've talked about it at length, so I won't go into depth, but we make our our work, our identity, that is who we are. What's one of the first questions that people ask when when you're meeting a new person? Hi, my name's Trey Sheffer. What's your name? Oh, it's Joe Bob. Uh, Hi, Joe Bob. And what do I ask him? What do you do? (laughs) Right? Why is your name Joe Bob? (laughs) Your mom and dad? My goodness. Yeah, well, okay. <laughs> right, thank you, bud. Um, what do you do? Because we want to know who they are. And in a sense, not that it's wrong that we ask that. There's nothing sinful about it. But I think it, it gets to something deep within us. And that is, especially for men, I think, what we do is, 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 in a sense, who we are. And it can become an idolatrous identity. That is, we can think of ourselves primarily as pastors or Teachers or businessmen or whatever it is that you do rather than Christians. So, do you make your work your identity? I think one way to tell, and I ask myself this often. One way that I can tell if my work is my identity is to think about how I would respond if I failed at work. So how would you respond if you failed at work? If the business that you run goes under and goes into bankruptcy, if your particular job responsibility, your supervisor says you are doing it very poorly and they, they reprimand you or maybe you're even fired because you are incompetent, they are, you're not doing the, the work well, what if your kids just turn out horribly and you're a mom and you think your identity is so wrapped up in that. What if, what if you fail at your work? How would you respond? Would life be over? Would your very being feel like a failure? Would you be a failure if you failed at work? I think these are hints that point us towards this reality that sin can, also, uh, can so oftentimes become self Centered and can be established as our identity, but rather to fight this and to combat it, we must seek to find our identity in Christ. That is who we are, primarily, we're Christians. And I don't know about you, I don't do much perfectly. Actually, I don't do anything perfectly, but I know one that I trust in and I know one that I identify with who does and did and continues to do his work perfectly and that is Jesus Christ. And he says that I have a pure robe of righteousness regardless of how I work and that before the eyes of a holy God, regardless of how I work, whether I'm a failure or a success, that I am accepted before him. We'll talk about this In a moment, we've seen three principles, three of our five. Sin, it makes work harder. It makes us as workers and our organizations fallen. It can lead towards selfishness in our work. And number four, we move out of the book of Genesis and into the book of Ecclesiastes. So if you have your Bibles, turn to the book of Ecclesiastes. It's a wisdom literature, it's kind of in the middle of your Bible. Uh, If you can't find it or don't want to look for it, the text should be up on the screen. But Ecclesiastes chapter 2. We are moving out of Genesis to find our last two effects of sin on our work, and number four is this: sin. Sin makes work futile. Sin makes our work futile, according to Ecclesiastes chapter two, verses seventeen through twenty-five, and a few other sections as you continue to read through the book of Ecclesiastes. Now, when I use the word futile, I don't want you to hear um, not inherently valuable because I don't think that's true. That's not what he means here in Ecclesiastes. What he means is, well, uh, I'll give you a quote. There was a dairy farmer. Some of you know dairy farmers or were involved in that. There was a dairy farmer, and he commented on this book of Ecclesiastes, and I think his comment about his work fits the bill about what the author of Ecclesiastes means when he says work is futile. The dairy farmer says this, the hardest thing about milking cows is that they never stay milked. They never stay milked. That is what I think the book of Ecclesiastes means by work is futile. That is, it has to be done over and over again. Its effects are not forever lasting. It can be frustrating and it can often fail. So let's think together back to the book of Genesis. What did God intend? God created human beings. He, uh, we see last week that God called us and made us as workers um, and that our work was supposed to last forever. Have you ever considered that, that God made us as workers, Adam and Eve, and that he never intended death? Death is not our friend. Death is our enemy. God will fix that one day when Christ returns. We were meant to live forever, and we were meant to work. So you put those two things together, and what does that get you? We were meant to live forever and to work forever, and for our work and its results to last forever without decay, without decline, without having to do it over again, without failure, but with sin came death and with death came the futility of our work. That is, it has to be done over and over again. Ecclesiastes chapter two, Solomon, the author of that book, tells us this in verses uh, 17 through 24. He says, so I hated life. Why, Solomon? Why did you hate life? For I hated life because of the work That is done under the sun that was grievous to me. Well, why did you hate that work? All of its meaninglessness, a chasing after the wind. I hated all the things that I had toiled for under the sun because, and he's going to give us a whole list of reasons why his work will not last forever. Because I will leave them to the one who comes after me kids, grandkids, sons, daughters, co-workers, people who might buy his business out. Verse 19, and who knows whether that person will be wise or foolish. So I'm going to leave my business to someone, and they may ruin it. I'm going to leave my legacy to my son or my daughter, and they may spoil it. Yet they will have control over all of the fruit of my toil into which I have poured my effort and skill under the sun. This too is meaningless. futile, is the word. So I So my heart began to despair over my toilsome labor under the sun. For a person may labor with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, and they must leave here's the the kicker, the futility and they must leave all that they own to another who has not toiled or worked for it. Ultimately, your money, your assets, the things that you do, the things that you create, it will be left to someone else, is what he says. What do people get for all the toil and anxious striving? with which they labor under the sun. All their days, their work is grief and pain. Even at night, their minds do not rest. This too is meaningless. And those of you uh, may uh, know what Solomon is meaning. You can't turn off your mind at your work because it's going, it's going, it's going. So Solomon makes the case that work, because of sin, is futile. That is, it just, it's not forever lasting. So what should we do? Well, he tells us, There's a silver lining to this. How do we respond in this age where there's sin, awaiting the day when we will be resurrected from the dead if we have faith in Christ, awaiting the day when our work will be forever again, awaiting the day when our work won't be futile? What do we do until then? Well, he tells us in verses 24 and 25, a person can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in their toil. This too, I see, is from the hand of God. For without him, who can eat or find enjoyment? So simply, simply what he says is principle number four. He says, because our work won't last forever, we must learn to enjoy the work itself and its benefits. We must learn to enjoy the work and its benefits. That is, we need to learn to find joy in what we do and how we do it, as well as the benefits that we get from it. So some of us maybe enjoy our work. I don't know about you. I'm not gonna raise your hands or anything because you have coworkers and stuff, but uh, if if I ask you the question, do you enjoy your work? Do you find satisfaction from it?" it? Some of you will say, yes, I love it. I was born to do this. And some of you would say, man, I hate my job. Uh, I don't like it, I don't enjoy it, it doesn't fit my skills, it's tedious, it's boring, it's overly hard. Um, for, so how do, you, how do you do what Solomon is saying here if that's, if that's you? If you don't naturally find joy in your job, there's an article that I've printed for you that I think is out on the Welcome Center. It's called Five Ways to Find Joy in a Job That You Don't Love. Uh, I'm gonna read the shortened version of it and then give you the full to take home. Maybe that's you. What do you do? How do you, as Solomon says, find joy in it and enjoy the benefits of it? Well, here's five quick points, and I recommend the article to you. Number one, he says, repent of ideal job-olatry. Ideal job-olatry. That is, making an idol out of the ideal job. He says, if we dream about our job, our ideal job, and start saying, I will truly be happy when I'm doing X. We elevate our work to a functional savior and give it the place in our hearts reserved only for Christ. No job will make you happy in and of itself, which is what Ecclesiastes says. That joy depends entirely and only on Jesus Christ. Number two, fill yourself with scriptures if you're a Christian and pray daily. He says meditating on scriptures, not just reading it, but thoughtfully, prayerfully digesting it into your souls provides us with soul nutrition, that can help us get through very tough and mundane work situations. Number three, he says, invest in the task. Invest in the task itself and in the relationships of your work. He says, when you take ownership of your job, that is, you invest in the task and you strive to do your best at it, which we'll learn is a Christian way to work in the weeks to come, we come to enjoy it more. He also says, investing in your work community, that is, your co-workers, even though they're sinful like you are, can also cultivate joy. Number four, he says, contemplate the goodness of your job. I think that's extremely helpful. He says, most jobs usually, somehow, harmonize with God's redemptive work in creation. He says, does your work bring order out of chaos? Does your work and job involve correcting errors? Even if your work doesn't resonate,